Thank you, Joel. God bless you, man. Welcome. Yes. Amen. We're so glad to, to have Joel here with us. It's been the answer to a lot of prayers. And I hope that you'll uh, be praying for Joel and his family. His wife's still down in Houston uh, with, in their home there. They're still trying to sell that. And um, his uh, two younger children, his two boys, are here and just started in school. So there's a lot of things. You all know that when you've moved somewhere new. It kind of can be unsettling. So we need to be praying for Joel and for his family. I know you all will be doing that with us. Well, this is a first Sunday of the month, and so the end of the service this morning, uh, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper together, so uh, you can be preparing your hearts for that here this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Thank you for being here, and uh, you've joined us at a good time. I said this last week, we're just a couple of weeks into a study, an exposition of the book of Daniel. And we've titled this series, uh, The End Time and the Meantime. And uh, we've made our way now to chapter 2. So if you want to take your Bible and open there with me to Daniel chapter 2, we're going to begin this morning this great chapter together, uh, one of the longest chapters in the Bible. But it's also one of the uh, pivotal prophecies um, of the Bible as well. We're going to look at this great chapter um, over the next two weeks together. I'd like to, we could spend uh, many, many weeks in it, but I think we'll be able to uh, cover this well and cover it very thoroughly in these next couple weeks. Um, we're we're going to look at verses 1 through 30 this morning, and so rather than read that, that long section, let me just read the first six verses to kind of uh, set the backdrop for us or set the table here this morning, and uh, then we'll begin. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came to his, his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldean spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Well, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts uh, this morning. There's a story about a woman who woke up one morning and she, she told her husband, she said, I just dreamed that you gave me a pearl necklace for our anniversary. Uh, what do you think that means? And he said, well, you'll know tonight. So that evening, the man came home with a small package and gave it to his wife, and delighted she opened it to find a book titled The Meaning of Dreams. (laughs) Not a very smart guy, I don't think, probably in doing that. But the book of Daniel here in Daniel chapter 2 is about the meaning of a dream. It's about the meaning of a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And it's a dream that reveals a sweeping panorama of prophecy. It's a dream about things to come. It's a dream about things that were future in Daniel's day and some things that are still even future in our own day. And in this chapter, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is going to drag us across history from his day in the 6th century B.C., Um, all the way through the first coming of Jesus, all the way to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of his glorious kingdom um, on this earth. Um, H.A. Ironside, who's a great Bible teacher of a couple generations ago, um, he said this, 
Daniel 2 contains the most complete and yet most simple prophetic picture that we have in all the Word of God. Let me say that again. Daniel 2 contains the most complete and yet most simple prophetic picture we have in all the Word of God. And I believe that's true. In Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see as we go through it these next couple of weeks that we have a key that's being cut that unlocks all the future prophecies of the Bible. And so this chapter's often been called the alphabet of Bible prophecy or the ABCs of prophecy. In fact, I like to call the book of Daniel, all of it really, the ABCs of prophecy, and the book of Revelation is kind of the XYZ of prophecy. But you can't understand Bible prophecy without a basic understanding of this chapter. It's that foundational and that fundamental, the understanding of God's plan for the ages. Now, this chapter neatly divides into two big main chunks, and we're going to look at it in these two two main chunks. Verses 1 to 30 that we're going to look at this morning is this dream of Nebuchadnezzar that God gives to him. And then down in verses 31 uh, all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 49, this is the interpretation that Daniel's going to give of this dream. And it's going to take us into some um, incredible prophecies. So next week, we'll get into the details of the dream and and these prophecies related to it. But this morning, I want to look at verses 1 to 30, the story that really sets the stage for the revelation and the interpretation of this dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And these verses we look at this morning, there's really a, a very simple but a very important message for us, I think, in these verses. And I think what these verses emphasize to us is that you and I must pray to God and praise God because God is sovereign and wise. You and I need to have confidence in our prayer. We need to have passion in our praise to God because God is sovereign and God is wise. I pray this morning that when we finish this message that you're going to pray with greater confidence to God this coming week. And you're going to praise Him with a greater and a deeper passion. So let's unpack these first 30 verses this morning. I've got five headings you can see in your outline. We'll look at the dream, the demand, the decree, there's a delay, and then finally, uh, the disclosure. So it all starts here in chapter 2, verse 1, with a dream. Now, the the verse begins, verse 2, my translation says now, some translations, English translations say and, but either way, now or and, this is not a detached episode. And it's connected to what happens and flows out of chapter 1. And you remember chapter 1 last time ends with Daniel and his three friends graduating uh, summa cum laude from Babylon University. And if you'll remember back in chapter 1 and verse 17, the very end of that verse is going to really sets us up for chapter 2. The very end of verse 17 of chapter 1 says, Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. That's kind of a a setup now for what's coming, what's going to happen. Now, the events here in chapter 2 take place in Nebuchadnezzar's second year. Notice in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this is still early in his reign. He's a young king. His father, Nabopolassar, had died suddenly. And he'd been given the kingdom. And he's still kind of gaining control over his kingdom, if you will. So he's a young king in the formative years of his kingdom. And you think about this. He's a young man, and he had seen the mighty Assyrian empire fall about 10 years earlier. 
In 612 B.C., his father, he was probably there with his father, with a couple of other nations, destroyed the mighty Assyrian Empire that had ruled the ancient Near East for 300 years. They came and destroyed the city of Nineveh in fulfillment of the prophecies of the book of Nahum. So he'd seen the the great Assyrian Empire fall. Um, He himself, Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, just three years before this, he had crushed the Egyptians himself in a great battle, one of the great battles of ancient history. So one night in, in probably late 603, early 602 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is lying in bed thinking about his future and the future of his kingdom. You can imagine that. Wondering, you've seen Assyria fall, he's defeated the Egyptians, what's going to happen to me and what's going to happen to my kingdom? And he finally falls asleep and he has a nightmare. Notice it says, Nebuchadnezzar, literally in the, in the Hebrew there, it's he dreamed dreams. He dreamed dreams. Now, some people think that he had a lot of dreams and there was just this one dream that was significant. But I I believe it was a recurring dream. It was the same dream again and again, over and over again, playing through his mind. He dreamed dreams, the same one, over and over again. And so it captures his attention. So he wakes up in a cold sweat, and he can't go back to sleep. It's a a miserable night. He's got a, a case of royal insomnia, and he can't stop thinking about this dream. Now, we've all been there before when you can't sleep and the same thoughts keep racing through your mind, right? And you just kind of can't shut it off. And so this, this dream keeps running through his mind. Someone said it like this years ago, the anxieties of daylight can become the monsters of darkness. And that's true at night as we lie there in bed. So Nebuchadnezzar, this king, dreams these dreams. And Nebuchadnezzar could conquer dynasties, but he couldn't conquer his own dreams. Now, back in the ancient world of that day, dreams were regarded as very significant. And I think he dreamed this same dream over and over again, so he knew it was important. And his insomnia makes it even worse because he can't go back to sleep again to maybe pick up where he left off and dream the same dream again. So he lies there with a terrible case of insomnia, tossing and turning for hours, thinking about his dream. I like what one person said about insomnia. They said, nothing cures insomnia like the realization it's time to get up. You ever notice that? You know, you got insomnia all night, and sure enough, the time you can finally go to sleep, it's time to get up. Well, finally, early morning arrives, and it's time to get up. So he crawls out of bed at the crack of dawn, determined to discover uh, the meaning of his dream. And so that brings us in verse 2 to the demand. The demand. Now, in this section, verses 2 to 11, we move from what I call sleepless in Babylon to clueless in Babylon. As Nebuchadnezzar calls in the Babylonian brain trust. Verse 2, the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king um, his dreams. So this is his cabinet. These are his advisors. Uh, These are the professional dream decoders, and they had all kinds of methods they used in that day to decode dreams. Now, this consisted of four groups of advisors, the magicians. uh, Literally, it means those who used the stylus. So these were the sacred writers. The conjurers were those who communicated with the dead. They're called conjurers or enchanters. The sorcerers are those who practice incantations or sorcery. And the Chaldeans here probably are the astrologers. They're a class of priests or wise men who are experts in astrology in the heavens. 
And you'll notice as we go through along here, the the Chaldeans kind of take the lead in this. Verse 4, the Chaldeans spoke. Down in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered. And many believe that the wise men who come and visit Jesus 600 years later come from uh, these Chaldeans, this this class of priests who are experts in, in astrology. Now, one question that always comes up here I need to address is why weren't Daniel and his friends there with these other wise men? Because we're going to find out later in the chapter they're somewhere else uh, when this executioner goes to their quarters. Now, to explain their absence, a lot of scholars will say that Daniel and his three friends were still in their three-year training period at Babylon University. Remember back in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, it says they were educated three years. When you come to chapter 2, verse 1, it's the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So I'll say, well, it's Nebuchadnezzar's second year. They got a three-year term of study. They still haven't finished yet, so that's why they're not there uh, with, with these other wise men. The difficulty with that is probably when it says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar, it's actually his third year. You say, well, why didn't it say that? Well, in Babylon, the way they counted the the reign of a king, the first year wasn't counted. It was called an accession year, and then the next year, then, which would be the second year, then was called the first year. So they didn't count the king's reign from his accession year. It's kind of like our counting school years. When you finally get to the end of your uh, secondary education, you go along and you finish the 12th grade but you've actually been in school for 13 years, right? Because you started with kindergarten, but they don't count it. It's kind of the same way it is here with the way the Babylonians did it. The the first year isn't numbered as part of the king's reign. So in the same way, I think, in chapter 1, we have Nebuchadnezzar's accession year, and so now this is actually the third year of his reign. And so I think that means that Daniel and his friends have already graduated because it seems to me there's a chronological flow out of chapter 1 where they've graduated now into chapter 2. Now you say, well, okay, if that's true, though, and it is his third year and they have graduated, that still doesn't answer the question of why weren't they there with these other wise men? Well, we can only speculate about that. Maybe they were superior to the rest of these men and were off on their own somewhere. Maybe they were working on some special assignment for the king. The bottom line is we don't really know, and it's not central to the plot of the story, but their absence does heighten the tension of the story as you go along because they have to go and find them separately from the others and so on. So we don't know why they're not there, but certainly there's some good reason uh, for that. Now, the next nine verses, verses 3 to 11, what we're going to see here is a fast-paced interchange between Nebuchadnezzar and the wise men. And each of them are going to speak three times, and it's going to get, in each round, in these three rounds, it's going to get more heated each time. So let's just look at these quickly. In round one... Um, In in verse 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar say to them, I had a dream. Now, notice here it's not plural. And say, I had dreams. I had a dream, singular. And my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Nebuchadnezzar wants to know um, his dream. And by the way, here in chapter, uh, in in verse 4, when the Chaldeans begin to speak, notice And they say the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, something interesting about the book of Daniel, from this point on, the middle of uh, chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 7 is a different language. It's the Aramaic language, which was the language, the lingua franca, or the language of that day. 
uh, in the Babylonian Empire. And probably that, this section of the book is written in Aramaic because it deals with Gentile kingdoms and Gentile rulers. But they begin to speak to, to the king now in Aramaic. So this is their answer here in round one. And uh, they just state the normal protocol. They always uh, butter up the king every time you speak to him. Oh, king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Now, this is the way it always worked. When a king had a dream, he would come and tell the wise men the dream, and then they'd go look at sheep livers or you know, throw uh, rocks in water or use all these different means of sorcery to give the interpretation of the dream. That's the way it always worked. So that's round one. It's kind of going as expected. But notice now in verse 5, we have round two. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar throws these men a nasty curveball. I mean, this is an outrageous demand. You know, if, if you tell somebody a dream, they can give you any interpretation, right? But he says, I want to know the dream and I want to know the interpretation. Now, because of this, a lot of commentators believe that, that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. He didn't remember it himself, so he wants him to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And that comes from uh, the King James translation in verse 5, where the King James translates it, the thing is gone from me, as if he forgot the dream. But actually, I think the New American Standard translates it better, the command from me is firm. It's not the thing is gone from me, the dream is gone, but the command has gone forth from me and it's firm. So I believe Nebuchadnezzar remembered the dream. Because as you read this whole account here, the wise men didn't think he'd forgotten it because they kept asking him to tell it to them, right? And all he would have had to say at some point is, I don't remember it. But they keep pressing him to tell them the dream and they'll give him the interpretation. So they certainly believe that he remembered it. Moreover, if the king was so upset by this dream, he must have remembered what upset him. I believe what's behind this is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't trust them. He suspected they were devious and phony. So he's on to them. And think about this. He's got a new administration there in Babylon, so he may believe that there's a deep state in Babylon that's working against him. And he wants to make sure he's getting an accurate interpretation because he knows this dream is significant. In fact, if you look down at the end of verse 9, notice what he says. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Look, if you can give me the dream, then I'm going to know the interpretation you give me is right. So he's really saying this to them. If you claim to be able to tell the future, tell me the past. If you can tell me the past and what I dreamed, then I'm going to have confidence that you can tell uh, the future. Notice in verse 5, he says, if you don't do this, you'll be torn limb from limb. Literally, in, in, the, in the Aramaic here, it means you'll be made into limbs. You're just going to be made into a pile of limbs. And your house will be made into a rubbish heap. So you're going to be dismembered, and your house is going to be literally made into a dunghill. So people have called this the dunghill decree dismembered bodies and their homes made into a dunghill. And Nebuchadnezzar here, his thread is no empty thread, and they know that. So he's going to clean house if they can't uh, give him this dream and the interpretation. Then verse 6, 
But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you'll receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Now, I don't think that reward meant much to those men at that time because they knew what he was asking them to do was impossible. And again, notice the Chaldeans respond a second time, verse 7, with the same protocol. Let the king tell to his servants the dream, and we will declare the interpretation. They're just repeating the normal protocol. I mean, what else can they say, right? That's all they've got. You know, it's just like a broken record. Give us the dream, we'll give you the interpretation. Now, down in verse uh, 8, we come now to round 3. It's really getting ratcheted up. The king answered and said, I know for certain you're bargaining for time. You're, you're stalling, trying to run out the clock. As you have been seen that the command for me is firm, if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. He says, look, quit stalling. So he issues his edict, and now the wise men give their excuses. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. And that's true. There's not a man on earth, not a human in himself that can do this. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any of his magicians or his conjurers. So they, they appeal to precedent. They say, look, this is unprecedented. And they're really right in saying that. No king had ever asked anyone to do that before. But in doing that, they're admitting that they're frauds. They're blind Babylonians that are impotent and helpless. And I think one of the things God's doing in this chapter is revealing the emptiness and the darkness and the futility of pagan religions. One man I read this week said, paganism is a religious cul-de-sac. I mean, it doesn't take you anywhere. I was studying this passage this week. We got a magazine here at the church we've never received before. I don't know why we got it, but it's called Smithsonian. And there was an article in there, a really good article, about the kingdom of Cush that I read, about the Cushites who lived south of Egypt. But, but one of the things I read this article that broke my heart is that there's a, some ruins out in the area away from a modern village, and there's an idol there that's lying down on its side kind of broken. It's an you know, ancient idol, large stone figure of a person. And it said in the article that people from the surrounding villages still visit that site to pray to that image, especially women, to seek help with fertility. And people go out there and pray uh, to seek for guidance. And it broke my heart to think about, think, think about people trudging out to that site for help and guidance from a dead piece of stone that can't even keep itself standing up. Just lying out there on the ground in the dirt, and yet they go out there to seek guidance and to seek help. And it just shows the desperation in people's lives to get some light from somewhere beyond themselves that can help them um, in this life. But in verse 11, they, they continue to profess their cluelessness. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and I'd say so. And there's no one who can declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Now, up to this point, they're right, but this points us forward to Jesus Christ. What these Babylonians said was true. The gods don't dwell in human flesh, but all of this would change 600 years later in a Bethlehem manger 
When God took upon himself unfallen humanity and dwelled with man on earth and became one of us and stooped all the way down, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and he dwelled among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God with us. He's full deity and unfallen humanity in one person. They said here the gods don't dwell with human flesh, and it was true when they said it, but not anymore. The true God, the only God, has come down to become one of us and become man. I know I quote this often at Christmas, but I love that statement. The one who made man was made man. The creator came and took on the form of his creation. Augustine said it like this, speaking of Jesus. He lies in a manger, but he holds the whole world in his hands. He sucks his mother's breast, but feeds the angels. He's swaddled in rags, but clothes us in immortality. Now think about this. Ironically, wise men from the east, possibly uh, people who were the successors of these Chaldeans here, were some of the first ones to witness God dwelling in human flesh. Here there are 600 years earlier, the gods don't dwell with human flesh. Yet some of their number, many years later, may have been some of the first people to come and actually witness God dwelling with man in mortal flesh. Those Babylonian wise men traveled 800 miles to worship Jesus and to receive him. And I pray this morning that every one of us have done that, that we've trusted in Jesus Christ uh, to be our Savior. In John 1.13, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Uh, Jesus Christ came and he died for us. And he did what only God can do because only God could pay the infinite price of sin, but only man had to pay it. So Jesus was the one uniquely qualified, God and man in one person, to come and to pay the price for human sin. And all you and I have to do to have a relationship with the true and living God is to trust in him and receive that pardon that he purchased for us on the cross. So I pray that you've done that. If you haven't, do that this morning and take Jesus Uh, to be your Savior. Well, I'd I'd love to linger there longer, but let's get back here to the main story. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's finally had enough of his wise men, so in verse 12, he delivers the decree. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. Nebuchadnezzar goes into a royal rage. He blows his top, and he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. So his patience is gone. He delivers the final ultimatum here. Tell me the dream and the interpretation, or you'll be killed. And this is no empty threat. And of course, now Daniel and his friends get caught up in this. So we finally get to Daniel here, down in verse 14, and what I call the delay. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, or maybe better there, the executioners, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. So the extermination begins, and the king's henchman Arioch here arrives at Daniel's door with his execution squad. And as in chapter 1, Daniel always seems to have a knack for knowing the next step. Daniel replied with discretion. Literally, that word means taste. He answered with good taste and discernment to Arioch. His life hangs in the balance, but Daniel is prudent and he's poised. 
And you'll notice in verse 15, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. Notice Daniel doesn't question the king's decision. He's wise. But his question is, what's the hurry? And what he's going to ask here to Arioch and ultimately Nebuchadnezzar is give me a shot at it. Give me one shot to give you the dream and the interpretation. So verse 16, Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now to me this is fascinating. What is the one thing that these wise men are asking for? More time. And he doesn't give it to them. What is the one thing Daniel goes in and asks for? He asks for more time. So he knows these wise men are stalling. When Daniel comes in and says, give me more time, Nebuchadnezzar looks at this young man, probably at this time maybe 17 to 20 years of age, and he stops the clock. He gives a temporary stay of execution. And to me, there must have been something about Daniel as he looked into the eyes of this young man and he thought, you know what, I'm going to give this young man a shot. Now, what he doesn't give others, he gives, to Nebuch- he gives to Daniel. And we can see here that God is at work. But he does tell him, Daniel and I remember, you've got to give me the dream and the interpretation. <laughs> and not just the interpretation, but you've got to give me the dream as well. Verse 17, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. By the way, that's the last time Daniel's three friends are mentioned by their Hebrew names in the passage. But I love this. It says, in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. The word mystery occurs eight times in this section. So that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel doesn't panic. He prays. We see throughout the book, Daniel is a man of prayer. We're going to see it emphasized greatly in chapter 6. But think about these men. They're desperate. And they turn to God for help. While these wise men are shaking in their sandals, Daniel and his friends are bowing on their knees before God. And it doesn't record their prayer, but I'm sure it included words like this, God, we're helpless. God, if you don't do this, we're dead men. God, we're totally dependent upon you. God, we pray that through us you can glorify yourselves here before Nebuchadnezzar and the court of Babylon. But I love this because these men pray confidently to God. We're going to see afterwards in this doxology, they believe that God is sovereign, and they believe that God is wise, and so they go to Him in prayer. And look, a lot of us today with things that are going on around us in our world may feel desperate and helpless in a lot of situations we're in. I could go list a long list of things that probably many of us are struggling with. And I, uh, I want to share just a couple stories quickly from a book. Um, it's, I've, I've quoted it several times. I brought it in here today. A Hundred Bible Verses That Made America by Robert J. Morgan. This is a great book. I, I went back, actually, and was rereading some of it this week. I want to just share a couple of quick stories that built my faith this week. And this idea that when we're up against it, we're helpless. And we can go to God in confidence and trust. And God is a God who comes through. Um, one of the, one of the uh, stories, it's September 17, 1849, it's about uh, Harriet Tubman, who led the Underground uh, Railway to get black s- uh, slaves out of the south to the north. She takes 19 trips down there, risks her life. But before all of that, 
When she's a slave herself, the story says this. For the first 25 years of her life, Harriet Tubman was a slave in Maryland and spent much of her time behind oxen loading and unloading wood and carrying heavy loads, which gave her the endurance of an athlete. She was whipped in childhood, and as a young person, she was injured when her owner threw a metal weight at her. Soon afterwards, she began praying for God to convert her master. She said, I groaned and prayed for old master. O Lord, convert master. O Lord, change that man's heart. Appears I prayed all the time about my work everywhere. I prayed and groaned to the Lord. When I went to the horse trough to wash my face, I took up the water in my hand, and I said, O Lord, wash me, make me clean. Then I took up something to wipe my face, and I said, O Lord, wipe away all my sin. Now think about this woman and how she's being treated. She's asking God to wash away her sin and praying for this man. She said, I prayed for Master till the 1st of March, and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. Then we heard that some of us was going to be sold with the chain gang going down to the cotton and rice fields, and they said I was going, and my brothers and sisters too. Then I changed my prayer. The 1st of March I began to pray, Oh Lord, if you ain't never going to change that man's heart, kill him. Lord, take him out of the way. Next I heard, Oh, Master was dead. That's a, that's a tremendous, tremendous story. She's praying God convert him. When he gets bad enough, she says, Lord, if you're not going to convert the man, kill him. Next thing I heard, old master, I was dead. Of course, she goes on to do all kinds of things, great things uh, for God in, in, in getting slaves out of the South during the war. One other story. This, these are just faith builders for me. Um, August 16th, 1864. I'm um, some... Uh, Troops were taken from the north down to the infamous POW camp at Andersonville, Georgia. It was a camp built for 10,000 men on 26 acres, but there were 30,000 uh, POWs in this camp. The water uh, was so um, affected there, there was a water famine that had set in, is what they called it. People were, men were buying by the hundreds of disease. So on one occasion, it says, Sergeant Shepard, a man who was there, led those nearby in singing the doxology to gather a crowd. About 25 unkempt, starving men gathered and joined the song. It's strange, reminded them of home and family and worship services they enjoyed before the war. After the singing died down, Sergeant Shepard said something to this effect. And he tells about reading in the book of Numbers how God struck the rock and water gushed out to give ample supply to the children of Israel in the wilderness. And so he called upon one uncombed, unwashed, ragged comrade and says, will the brother from Chicago pray? So they all just began to pray for God to give them water. And it says the next morning when they woke up, an ominous stillness pervaded nature. A, a, a downpour came, a thunderstorm. It says when it came upon us, the sensation was as if a million buckets of water were being poured upon us at once. When the storm finally ended, a prisoner near the north gate began shouting, a spring, a spring. He wrote in his memoirs, this one soldier, that uh, he saw the vent of a spring of purest crystal water which shot up into the air into a column and falling into a fan-like spray went babbling down the grade. Some nearby prisoners described how during the storm a lightning bolt had struck inside the deadline, releasing the underground spring. It was as dramatic as Moses striking the rock. A trough was built, bringing an endless supply of water to the prisoners, and the spring still gurgles to this day. If you visit Andersonville, you can tour the National Prisoner of War Museum, walk over to a stone shelter, and see what is now called Providence Spring, with this inscription, God smote the hillside 
and gave them drink, August 16th, 1864. Those are just the kinds of stories that, that are in this book, but in church history as well. Stories like this that many of us may not know anything about, but people who go to God in confidence and go to Him in trust because they believe that God is sovereign and they believe that God is wise and He will do what's best. So I hope for all of us this week that your faith will be built like mine has been. We'll pray to God in confidence, in confidence in His sovereignty and His wisdom. Well, this section ends with what I call the disclosure. In, Dan, in, in verse 19, Daniel does something remarkable. He goes to sleep. He prayed. He put the matter in God's hands, and he did what Nebuchadnezzar couldn't do. He went to sleep. And as he did, God revealed the mystery in a vision of the night, and Daniel's prayer now turns to praise. We have the doxology of Daniel. Now, I don't know about you, but I might have rushed right on into the king real quickly, but Daniel pauses to praise. He doesn't run to see Arioch. He doesn't run to see Nebuchadnezzar, but he rushes into the presence of God and pauses for praise. It's like a story I heard one time. It's from Charles Spurgeon. He led a woman to Christ, and she said, if God saves me, he'll never hear the end of it. And I like that. If God saves us, we never want to let him hear the end of it. That's the way Daniel and his friends are. Notice it says in verse 19, the God of heaven. The God of heaven. This emphasizes that God is above the sun and the moon and the stars the Babylonians worship. He's the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. That's the first time in the Old Testament you have the words forever and ever, and they're used in reference to God. God is not limited by time or space. Wisdom and power belong to him. Verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. He removes kings and establishes kings. That ought to give all of us comfort in light of November 3rd, right? Election day coming up. When casting your vote, be confident. Let me say this, by the way, we need to vote. We should vote. And vote the Bible. Vote biblical truth and convictions and pray. Be praying for these elections. But above all, know and trust that political turnover is in God's hands. God orders the rise and the rubble of kings and kingdoms. God is at work. We can believe that and trust in that. It's like J.N. Darby said years ago, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes that he's behind. We have to learn this and let him work. Look, God does work behind the scenes, but he moves the scenes that he's behind. And so you and I can trust his sovereignty and his wisdom um, in these upcoming elections. Verse 21, God is the ruler. Now verse 22, God is the revealer. It is he who reveals the profound and the hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. God is a revealer. This reminds me of uh, the story I know I've told before, but the man who goes to visit the local psychic, and when he gets there, there's a sign on the door that says, closed due to unforeseen circumstances. And uh, there are no unforeseen circumstances with God. God knows the end from the beginning, and He reveals His plans to us. Not all of them, but some of them. And these wise men of Babylon, they're like that, that psychic. They're clueless. But God is timeless, and God is matchless. 
Daniel goes in verse 23 to personal praise. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks, for you've given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what we requested of thee, for thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Daniel goes and extols the greatness of God. And we all know this, but the vision of a big God reduces our stress and our distress. The larger view you and I have of who God is, the less we're going to have stress and distress uh, in this life. It's like a lady that once came to the the preacher, G. Campbell Morgan. She said, I only take small things to God because I don't want to bother him with the big things. Dr. Morgan said, lady, can you think of anything that's big to God? Everything we bring to God is a little thing, but God cares about it, and God knows. Now, the narrator here draws out the action to build the suspense. Now it's showtime. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the presence of the king. I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now, I love this verse 25. This is classic. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles who can make the interpretation known to the king. He takes full credit for it. Arioch does. He didn't have anything to do with it. But he knows he's probably going to get some, uh, some points with the king for doing that. I found a man who can declare uh, to the king uh, the interpretation. Of course, Daniel, we see in contrast to that, his humility. The king answered and said, Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream and the interpretation? He wants to make sure he's not just coming to give the interpretation, but he knows the dream. Daniel answered before the king and said, this is beautiful. As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners can declare it to the king. He's setting Yahweh in contrast to them. However, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. By the way, that's a a little phrase that just encouraged me all week. I love those words. There's a God in heaven. You and I need to remember that every day. There's a God in heaven. He's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Notice here, Daniel gives God first place. He's the one who gave the revelation. He gives God the glory. He gives Nebuchadnezzar second place because he's central to God's plan. And then he gives him third place, self third place, as merely the vehicle or the instrument or the channel for this revelation. Now, this is where the plot really thickens. Verse 20, verse, uh, into verse 28, he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter years. That, that statement, latter years, always carries the idea, it may just be things in the future, but in almost all of its uses in the Old Testament, it goes all the way to the Messianic kingdom. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turned to what would take place in the future. Remember I told you earlier, we know Nebuchadnezzar was lying in bed that night thinking about the future. Now, I think Nebuchadnezzar at this time is scooting up to the edge of his throne because Daniel's telling him what he was thinking about when he went to sleep that night. Your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me any more than in any other living man. 
but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Now again, I think Nebuchadnezzar has moved to the edge of his throne at this time. I think his mouth's hanging open and he can't believe what he's hearing. This man is ready. Now that's where we're going to leave off here this morning. This is a real cliffhanger. So you got to come back next week to get the rest of the story and find out what God's going to do in this great passage. Well, let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you that you're God only wise, that you're the ruler, you're the sovereign, that you're the one who sits on your throne in heaven. There's no one like you, O God. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to come to you often in prayer, bold prayer, knowing that you're sovereign and knowing that you're all wise. Father, I thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ. God did come down and dwell with mortal flesh in the person of Jesus. Again, Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in him, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, who died for us, rose again, that they might do that this morning right where they sit. Father, again, give us a renewed, reinvigorated confidence to pray to you and to praise you, knowing that you're sovereign and you're wise. Now as we come to the Lord's Supper, I pray that you'll minister to us, that you'll draw us close to you, that our worship and our remembrance here this morning will be a fragrant aroma to you, our great God. You're worthy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.